kicking and screaming just seems to me like a little more arch and far more intelligent version of friends. Like if you want that feeling of being young and not knowing what you're doing yet, watch this instead. Watch this 300 times instead of watching 300 episodes of Friends. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about one of my favorite movies ever, a coming-of-age movie that debuted around the mid-1990s when a number of self-consciously hip movies were made with the Generation X youth market in mind. The most famous of these movies were probably Reality Bites and Singles and maybe Empire Records, but few were quite so funny and affecting for me as this one. I'm going to Prague. So how will that work if you're living with me in Brooklyn? Well, it'll be the same except I'll be in Prague. It's time to turn to your friends. For support. How about worst-case scenarios after graduation? Jane dumps me to move to Prague. I spend the rest of my life with you idiots. That's from the trailer to Noah Baumbach's debut movie Kicking and Screaming, which came out in 1995 when I was about the same age as its characters. Kicking and Screaming was never a marquee film, and it's not even the most well-known movie by Noah Baumbach, whose 2006 film The Squid and the Whale was nominated for an Oscar. But Kicking and Screaming is quietly and fervently beloved by a lot of people, people like Lena Dunham and Jonathan Rosenbaum and almost everyone in Bill Simmons' Ringer podcast cohort, including Bill Simmons himself and Chuck Klosterman and Michael Weinreb, who I interviewed today. Michael is a sports writer best known for books like Season of Saturdays and Bigger Than the Game, and he once admitted to Grantland that he'd watched Kicking and Screaming 200 times when he was in his mid-20s, which is exactly why I invited him on the podcast to talk about the movie. As we point out, Kicking and Screaming doesn't have a conventional plot. It's about a group of four friends who can't quite leave college after having graduated, but its chatty and depressed characters epitomize the paralysis that can grip young men at the moment they're supposed to be making something of themselves in life. The mid-1990s was a famously placid time in history, so the conflicts here are very subtle in a hilariously low-stakes way. At a very abstract level, it's a quirky love story involving a guy named Grover and a girl named Jane. But at its heart, it's about uncertainty and indecision and nostalgia for the very recent past at a time of life transition. It's actually inspired by Noah Baumbach's experiences at Vassar College. And as we talk about in this episode, it has as many quotable one-liners as, say, The Big Lebowski. If you've never seen Kicking and Screaming, you might want to watch it first, since regardless of whether you love it as much as Michael and I do, a familiarity with the movie will help you better understand our conversation as we celebrate and break down the movie. This episode is brought to you as usual by Airtrex, which creates multi-stop and round-the-world flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. Check them out at Airtrex.com and use their flight planning tools to dream about your next big journey. But for now, here's Michael Weinreb and I talking about why Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming may well be the best coming-of-age movie ever made. I feel like you're the fir- the perfect person to talk to because in 2011, like eight years ago, you wrote for Grantland that you'd watch this movie 200 times between 1995 and 2000. And I, and I want to know why in a second, but first... Probably the hardest question I'm going to ask you is how would you describe the plot of Kicking and Screaming? I don't know if there really is a plot. I think it's one of those mid-90s movies slash TV shows where the plot doesn't really matter, where it's more just about these characters sort of searching for themselves 
And I guess they are kind of going through a transition and there is sort of a loose love story in there. But it feels like the plot is that there is no plot, that these guys are kind of aimless and that they don't know what they're doing next. Um, and, and, I, and I realized watching it again last night that it's really kind of about those transitions that you go through in life kind of, you know, it's obviously about post-college, but I think it sort of fits every transition that you wind up going through in life and sort of refinding yourself, I guess, or figuring out who you are at at each stage of life. Maybe I'm, I'm probably, uh, you know, assigning way too much profundity to a movie that's largely been forgotten by pop culture, but that's just how it feels to me. I don't know. Well, it does feel profound. I mean, it's sort of about the loss of status that accompanies a transition like graduation. You know, these these guys were were big shots on campus, or at least they thought of themselves as as big fish in this small pond. And suddenly, they're not really sure what to do them with themselves. They miss this status. And you know, one thing that I wrote down about this movie, and I don't know if I thought of this or if I read it someplace, but it's like there are. Everybody in this movie is part of the Greek chorus, and nobody is really interested in being the main character. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, they're 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 a uh, they're a group, they, and they really are sort of this um, you know very diverse and strange group. They, they you know they're trying to obviously come up with a name for themselves, um, put it on a satin jacket. But um, you know, I think that's that's that is true. There there. I mean, I guess Grover is technically the main character and we sort of follow his love story, but it doesn't feel like he's a main character. It feels like he does. You're right. He doesn't want to be a main character because he doesn't really know who he is yet. None of these people really know who they are yet. Even Eric Stoltz, who's what in his seventh year of college, doesn't really know who he is yet. And that's, I think, how a lot of us feel when we're 21 22 23 years old and and coming out of college and have no idea what we're going to do next yeah it feels like the 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 male characters uh are are not doing a very good job of of deciding what to do like the women are doing okay and in a way you know having watched it for the umpteenth time before doing this interview i realized that like jane's story is somehow it, it it's already happened you know most cinematic stories are about a character that needs to change makes the change and moves to a new level. Well, you know, Jane was this troubled person who sort of gave these guys all these affectations like drinking scotch and smoking cigarettes. And then she gets over it. She quits smoking and moves to Prague. And and it just so it's so startling to Grover that it, and and part of the brilliance of the movie I think is that this could be a romantic comedy about Grover going to Prague after Jane and having some sort of misadventures there. Uh, but in fact, he, he spends the whole movie maybe deciding to go to Prague. So it's, it's just such a – it strikes me of how unusual this movie is. Yeah, it really is a movie – a lot of it's about indecision. And as a very indecisive person, I probably related to that a lot, especially when I was younger. And, and you're right. I mean I think there's that great line you know, when, when early in the movie when Jane's like talking about how childlike – Grover is and he's like well if I was a child you'd find that endearing you know and it's like he just can't get over this idea that he should move on or be something else you know and the whole thing with Otis just you know refusing to go to Milwaukee it's like these guys just can't take that next step and you know I've I've, I feel like that 
you know, I'm sort of a person who is averse to change and afraid of sort of making the wrong decision or doing the wrong thing a lot of the time. So so I think for all of us who feel that way, that's that's kind of what this movie taps into. Well, I'm curious to know about this this 1995 to 2000 window in your life wherein you watched this movie 200 times because I feel like there were some there were some very specific reasons why I became smitten by this this movie at the same time. But just touching on the Jane character, it's so funny how in a in a normal movie like Jane literally says, you know, um, Grover asked her what's in Prague, and one of the things she mentions is, well, me. You know, it's like. She's waiting for him to realize that this could be a romantic comedy, but Grover is too stubborn to grab onto it. And then later in the movie, when when Grover is interacting with his dad, and I, and I apologize for the audience, this is, you know, f- for the people listening to this podcast, you sort of have to watch the movie to understand what we're talking about. But Grover's talking to his dad, and and his dad is like, "Well, where's Jane?" and and uh, and Grover's like, "He's she's in Prague," and he's here. Well, why aren't you with her? And he doesn't even answer the question. And so it seems like. This movie is so resistant to being a romantic comedy that it really embodies this indecision that happens to guys after college. So I'm curious, how did you discover this movie and what? how did it resonate and why that you watched it so many times when you were yourself a young man? Well, I'm pretty sure I probably just came across it in, you know, a blockbuster video or something. That's kind of how you discovered movies like this back in the day. There would be sort of the independent movie section and... I think I was at that point, I was working in a newspaper in Akron, Ohio, and didn't really know, you know, how long I was going to be there, what I was even doing there. I didn't really know that many people in Akron, wasn't sure what I was going to do next, what my career was going to be like. Um, and so I sort of gravitated toward all these coming of age stories because, you know, I went to I went to college and I went to a state school and I grew up in a college town. So I think I had an affinity toward that sort of college town setting which, my which college town did you grow up in and state college pennsylvania so okay. i went to penn i went to penn state which is a very different school from what these guys went to and just, just sort of i think i was i had never had that sort of like hyper intellectual banter with with friends like that you know and these guys were wearing like sport coats and they were you know on this in this liberal arts school and just sort of you know felt like they were highbrow even if they weren't you know and maybe i aspired to be that sort of highbrow type of person and hadn't realized it before um but yeah i mean i think the fact that they did not know what they were doing next but they sort of had these literary aspirations um tapped into something that i felt myself i guess you know And, and i think that's the reason why i kept watching also it's just it's really funny, man. Like, like those, those lines are just, they're great. Like I, I, you know, I, I hadn't even probably heard of Noel Coward or anything else at that point. You know, I hadn't seen a lot of Woody Allen movies, but it just felt like that the dialogue tapped into all these influences that I wound up kind of going to eventually and realizing that there was just, just a sort of banter that was just, it was, it was just great. It just, everything, I just loved everything about it. You never even been to Prague. Oh, I've been to Prague. Well, I haven't been to Prague, been to Prague, but I know that thing. I know that stop shaving your armpits, read the unbearable lightness of being, fall in love with a sculptor, now I realize how bad American coffee is thing. Beer, they have good beer. How bad American beer is thing. How bad American beer is thing. The movie was sort of about these guys mired in op in option paralysis, but it was an almost aspirational version of option paralysis. I mean, these guys were sort of suffering 
the same thing that all men, you know, I, I had a version of, of your story. I, I went to sort of a, a religious evangelical Christian college on the West Coast. And so I was also sort of wowed by these pseudo-intellectual conversations that they're having. You know, Skippy dings the bell and and tells people to name five empiricist philosophers, you know, <laughs> which which is such a silly thing to say, but it's 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 silly in a way that that my friends or and myself were not sophisticated enough to do. So it's almost like these are guys that are that are not really doing very very well in life, but in a way that sort of made me want to not do well in life in the same way. So was this was this was this before you really had any professional traction? I mean, I did have a job, I guess. So I had that, you know, and, and I felt like I was getting some professional traction. But but I was working, you know, like I said, I was working at this paper in Akron, Ohio, you know, not exactly the, the most uh, glamorous city in the world. And, uh, you know, I think I was at that point where I didn't do I didn't read a lot of books in college. I didn't really have like great literary aspirations in college. But I think I got to that point post-college where I started to feel like. You know, I started to read books that I actually wanted to read rather than I was assigned to read and, you know, started to see movies like this and just started to realize that there was a culture out there that I just hadn't fully been aware of. And and I think this this movie was part of it just because it was so smart and because it just sort of brought in all those references and all those influences that um, I kind of went back to, you know, even like the, the music, like like going and listening to, to Nick Drake because it's playing in the coffee shop at one point, you know, it's like there were just all these little things that like, as you watch that movie over and over again, which I did, it was like, I had these certain movies where like I would go to the bar with my friends and then I would come home and just throw on a movie and like fall asleep on my couch watching a movie. And this was the one that I would probably watch the most, you know? And, and, and so you, you just, it would reward repeated viewings too, because there were so many little references and little little easter eggs that, that you could kind of pick up on as you watched it over and over again but but i think yeah the general sense was that these guys were talking about things that i had heard of but didn't really know anything about and so i could sort of go and you know read the books that they were talking about though i still haven't read all the pretty horses so i guess otis and i have that in common <laughs> right well i want to get in i want to break down since we can't really there's no plot to follow i want to talk about each of the characters in a second um, but I, but this really was it was marketed as a Generation X movie, air quotes Generation X movie, which Noah Baumbach didn't really care for. But it was sort of the only way that I think media at the time could explain it to, to people, and I think that's why I picked it up off the video shelf in Wichita, Kansas. I mean, we didn't play any cinemas there. Uh, as a quick aside, you worked at an Akron newspaper. Didn't Chuck Klosterman work at an Akron newspaper? Yeah, the- Chuck is Chuck is a very good friend of mine, actually. In fact, okay, from, from us both working together at that Akron newspaper, so okay. Chuck and I would often, uh, you know, get high or get drunk and then go to his place and watch this movie as well. So he's seen it not quite as much as I have, but he's seen it quite a bit. Well, I've heard him talk about it. I've also heard Bill Simmons talk about it, and it seems like it's not—it's a cult movie, but not in sort of an above-the-surface cult movie. There's there's just a, a very there's very select group of people who just adore this movie, myself and apparently yourself included. But it's 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 not a part of the greater conversation. It feels like it's even a movie that Noah Baumbach doesn't talk about that much anymore. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously gone on to more highbrow things. But it's funny, it's like you look at a movie like Greenberg that he did, that almost felt like the sequel to Kicking and Screaming to me. It was a lot of the same themes and a lot of the same ideas of somebody sort of being stuck in life and not knowing what to do next. Um, 
And, and, and I sort of see in each of his movies, even like something like Francis Ha, I feel like there's still sort of those kicking and screaming themes underneath. And there's still that really sharp dialogue that kind of throws back to kicking and screaming a little bit. Um, so I get it because I'm sure he like, you know, it's like you and I, I'm sure if we look back at stuff that we wrote 20 years ago, we're like, oh, God, that's terrible. You know, so so I would imagine that he feels the same way about this movie, but but I felt like it kind of influenced a little bit of, of what came after. You're talking about these themes that come back in Baumbach's movies. I think sort of the inability to properly play one's age, you know, one's, one's resistance to being an adult or the age that they are is something that comes back again and again in his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, that, you know, sort of trying to find some level of maturity. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, you, you know, for... For context, for people who were young back then, I mean, this was kind of one in a sea of movies like this. When you look at Slacker, you look at Swingers, you, you know, there was a there were a lot of movies of sort of about this Gen X lifestyle. Obviously, Reality Bites, you know, um, this one just felt to me like it was maybe the smartest of the bunch. Yeah, I think part of the reason it was smart, a smart Generation X movie was that it wasn't really trying to be a Generation X movie. It was just sort of Noah Baumbach talking about what it was like for him to be young. And as we record this, it's the 25th anniversary of Reality Bites, and we've been hearing people talk a lot about it. And probably by the time I drop this this podcast, it will be the 25th anniversary, at least in the year sense, of kicking and screaming. Um but it just feels like, and, and this, it felt like this way to me back in the day that this was the best or maybe even the only Generation X type movie about young people that felt relatable. And I don't know if that's a dude thing or if it's just that, that Noah Baumbach bit into something true. Have you, have you seen a movie called Glory Days, D-A-Z-E? I have not. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Okay. It's, it's like the California, it's actually Ben Affleck is in it. Um and has early performances by by Sam Rockwell, uh, uh, Matt Damon, and Matthew McConaughey have cameos in it. I mean, not really cameos, just small appearances in it. And it's it's literally the same plot as Kicking and Screaming, except it happens in in uh, Santa Cruz, California. Um, and I'm not recommending that anybody watch it because it's an inferior movie. And but in a way, when I watch Glory Days, which is basically the California version of Kicking and Screaming. It was relatable in sort of a cringy way because it was a bunch of guys who think they're really funny, doing a lot of inside jokes. There's a lot of voiceover by Ben Affleck. And it was so relatable because it was it felt like it was as dumb as me and my friends, whereas Kicking and Screaming was like a, a smarter version of this stasis that you suffer in your mid-20s. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we I think we all had that group of friends where we thought – we were cool and we thought we had all these great conversations and, you know, all these wild times together. And then you look back and you just realize we were a bunch of idiots, you know, and that's kind of what's great about going back and watching kicking and screaming is you're like, these guys are pretty funny and, and kind of, kind of fun to hang around with. But now that I'm in my forties, I'm like, I wouldn't want to like, go to the bar every night with these guys, you know, I do it once maybe, you know, but it's like, it's like, you know, you kind of get to that point where you, where you're watching the movie and you're like, grow up already, dude, come on. Well, one weird thing that occurred to me today is that like, this literally is a movie about guys who can't change. You know, you read any screenplay book and it's about, you know, 
story is about change. It's about people who need to confront a certain conflict in their life and change so that they can confront it. And this is literally a movie about guys who refuse to change. But part of the charm of watching it so many times, especially when we were young, is that there's no that the movie itself doesn't change. You go back to these same, I think Quentin Tarantino called it a hangout movie. Have you heard of this? He, he would watch Dazed and yeah. Confused again and again because he just liked being around these characters. And I, I liked being around these characters in part because they didn't change. And, and years later, I came across a screenplay for Kicking and Screaming. And it was a little disappointing to see some alternative realities for how these characters acted because I liked the precise way that they, they, they exercise their indecision in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. They're, they're, you know, Dazed and Confused is probably the other movie that I've seen as much as I've seen Kicking and Screaming. So I guess I do like the, those Hangout movies, but but it just it 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 does feel like it really portray, it portrays each of these guys' emotional paralysis really well, and they're and they're all just different enough, you know. I mean. You know, they're all a bunch of like middle middle class or, or to upper class white guys, you know, it, going to this liberal arts school. So I don't want to say it's like a obviously not a huge diversity movie or anything like that. But I think the way that the characters are portrayed, there's a certain amount. There's more depth to them than you think there is. At least, you know, maybe that's what I got on the 148th watch. But it, but it just feels like I've I've known people at least a little bit like each of these characters at various points in my life. Well, I think it's, it's that idea of it's getting universality through the specificity. It felt like there's a lot of Noah Baumbach emotional specificity in this movie. And, you know, it is a very white movie. It's sort of an upper middle class movie. I guess Max Belmont has more money than the other characters, but everybody is, is pretty well off. Um, and, you know, watching Glory Days, which is sort of a forgettable movie, it actually has some racial diversity. It has, like, the comic book guy that all the girls sort of like is a black guy. And then the party animal dude is Asian, which I thought was interesting in that California way. But it didn't have the same resonance for me as this as this very white, upper-class, basically Vassar movie. Um, that It wasn't filmed at Vassar, but it, it, it felt like uh, Noah Baumbach was being very true to Vassar. And so I guess it was one of those things that, and maybe it was the same way for you, that I sort of watched it in an almost aspirational way. I mean, I also loved Ferris Bueller when I was in high school. And, and sometimes people say, oh, well, Ferris Bueller is about a, you know, a privileged white kid. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I sort of liked that part of Ferris. You know, I, I sort of liked that he was a little bit, he had more options than me. He was a little bit more interesting and articulate than me. And I, I feel the same way about the guys in Kicking and Screaming, that, that of course there's sort of a, a monolithic, within the diversity of the characters, there's there's sort of a class specificity to them in a way that, that uh, I found really appealing. And I guess the movie does touch on class a little bit, like because Otis drinks a cheese fry because he doesn't want to offend his working class waitress. <laughs> right? That's true. And and Max dating, um, I can't remember her name, but the cafeteria waitress, you know, who's, who's sort of a little more, you know, I guess probably lower middle class, you know, than the whole scene with the guy driving the truck that, that, that would rather be bow hunting. I'm going to smash that car. I'm going to break your fucking leg. This shouldn't be done. This guy would rather be bow hunting. Don't upset him because he'd already rather be bow hunting in any additional aggravation. So there is sort of that clash with like the townies a little bit, you know, which resonated with me as a, as a as a townie myself who had seen, you know, sort of grew up in a, in a place where some of us townies were the sons of professors and some of them were, 
you know, sons of farmers. So yeah, yeah, I, I sort of that that part I think did resonate with, with me really in a big way. But I think, um, you know, you mentioned that sort of aspirational notion. And yeah, I was the same way where like, I also love like, you know, reading like a separate piece or novels about prep school or, you know, dead poet society. So so maybe that was just me. But I think there was sort of this sense of, you know, I, I was a kid who, you know, grew up in a college town, but went to a state school and, and just didn't really know that that world existed, that there was this sort of upper class world where people were were very well educated and spoke about things that you know novels and movies and made references that i that went over my head and and yeah i I think maybe there was a sense that i wanted to be one of these characters when i I was younger it's interesting how there is sort of a prep schooly sort of an upper middle class trope going at least back to catcher in the rye in american storytelling because i think my dad was a just a normal middle class kansas guy who loved catcher in the rye which is about this very privileged prep school kid and actually they make jokes about catcher in the rye in kicking and screaming i think in that in that book club one of the characters says that it's like holding caulfield meets i don't know millen kundera or something Um, Uh, humbert 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 i just watched that line last night so yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, so so it's like it's very aware of itself, and actually the characters what I, that I want to get to in a moment. That there's a very meta way in which all the characters, including Grover, speak. Because at the end of the movie, when Grover is sort of making his decision to go to Prague, and we never know if he does go to Prague, he's not really talking about going to see Jane. He's sort of talking about the story he's going to tell later in life when he does go to Prague. And when I tell people about this in the future, I know that, you know. It, it, uh, It'll be the time that I, I went, you know? And I know that when I review this whole episode in my head, I'm not gonna know what I did or, or why I did it. I think they've done something with the real Grover. <laughs> but it'll make a good story of my young adult life and the time I chose to go to Prague. I'll look back on it, I won't believe that I actually went, you know, I went away. <sighs> so let me go, I have to, I need. Just put me on the plane. There's this almost painfully, delightfully awkward self-consciousness with which all the characters carry themselves in this movie. Yeah, and that gets to this idea that's also sort of, I think, defines my generation, and I assume your generation, I assume your Gen Xer too, yeah. but but sort of the, the this coming of age in the mid-90s, I mean, I am just sort of paralyzed by nostalgia sometimes, and I almost have to snap myself out of it, you know, this sense that, what is there's a line in there about like i like i'm already nostalgic for this moment and it hasn't even happened yet or something we graduated four months ago what can you possibly be nostalgic for i'm nostalgic for conversations i had yesterday i've begun reminiscing events before they even occur i'm reminiscing this right now i can't go to the bar because i've already looked back in it in my memory and i didn't have a good time and i I just feel like that's how i feel a, a lot of the time and i think there was something about growing up in that era that evoked that kind of nostalgia. And I don't know if you have a better sense of, of what it was or why that was and, and what this movie captured about that. But but that's just something that I feel when I watch this movie. It's just even last night, like I just moved to a new city and I'm in a new house. I've never lived in a house before. And I just felt like this overwhelming sense of like my life is changing again. And like this movie just kind of brought me back. And, and I just felt almost overwhelmed with nostalgia watching it. I, I felt the same way. I don't know if that's like now we're in our late 40s. I, I assume you're in your mid to late 40s by now. Yeah. Um, 
And and so you have this different relationship with all sorts of nostalgia. And one thing I noticed about kicking and screaming is how nighty specific it is. In a way, if if he could if Grover could text back and forth with Jane, it would be less of an issue because a key part of the story is when he's listening to answering machine messages. And there's young people who don't know what an answering machine is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's listening to Jane talk on the answering machine, and she's very earnestly saying that she misses him. And he's still in this in this bit of stasis where he can't do anything. Yet he takes it out of his answering machine. This is a detail I just noticed. Like the last couple times I watched the movie, he puts it in a boombox. And so late in the movie, he's playing Tetris by himself and listening to Jane's voice on a boombox. He's he's made the decision to take it out of the answering machine and put the tape into a boombox and listen to Jane's voice. So in a way, nostalgia suffuses this movie, you know, in a way that it, it's sort of paralyzing these guys. Nostalgia for the very near past is paralyzing these guys. Uh, but I think it's true. I, and I think those details sort of underscore a kind of nostalgia that we're still feeling today, and, and it's sort of a as sort of an aside. I, um, I mean, a lot of famous '80s people have died recently, um, mm-hmm. and I've I've recently been listening to this the song "Age of Consent" by New Order. Do you know this song? I saw you this I didn't listen to in the in the 80s because, as I joke, I had a mullet in the 80s, and if you had a mullet, you couldn't really hear New Order. Um, <laughs> it was a different frequency. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Like only ACDC got through, and so I was listening. I've been this has been on heavy rotation this year because it reminds me of the 80s. Yet I never listened to it in the 80s. I never listened to New Order in the 80s. But my my ritual in in the 2018s, soon to be 2020s is about New Order as this 80s band. So, yeah, I think it's almost like it's going to have to be its own podcast episode because y- you you brought this up and it has flummoxed me. Like, I'm not even really sure about my own relationship now with nostalgia, but I just know that it, it grows into strange new directions. And I was probably as guilty as the characters in the movie of suffering a little bit of near-past nostalgia in the 1990s too. Yeah, it was interesting to notice, you know, the sort of this these pop cultural references, you know, where like Grover calls up Max and is like, what was the name of that character on Josie and the Pussycats, you know? And and it was sort of that era of the 90s where, you know, you had Reservoir Dogs, you know, and talking about Madonna. And, 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 and it just, it, it felt like that was the era when we were sort of reflexively nostalgic for our childhood and for the pop culture of our childhood in ways that previous generations weren't and and didn't have they didn't have you know cable reruns of all these tv shows they didn't have simply have as many tv shows or 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 movies so so i think that's sort of infused into it as well the whole the whole game they play with the quizzing you know where it's like you know movies named after monkeys and 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 all these things that felt like it, it captured that feeling of nostalgia that we had in the moment um and then, you know, the, the like Max says, he's nostalgic immediately for conversations that he had yesterday. You know, it's it's like it, it just feels like we, we were at that time when everything was sort of reflecting back on itself. Even when we were young, we almost felt like we were old because we had, you know, we were we were con- constantly looking back on our previous experiences in our childhoods. And I think that's probably the most on-the-nose Gen X-y aspect of this movie. 
Um, but Noah Baumbach is smart enough that I think those scenes did double duty because the triv contests, which which are, are, are a fun ritual that they keep going back to, they also illustrate how disconnected the guys are from their girlfriends. And in fact, when, when Grover calls Max and asks about Josie and the Pussycats, he's with a girl, right? And, and then when, when, when Grover realizes he's about to hook up with Amy the freshman, um, he says, oh, I have to, I have to uh, what does he say? I have to sleep with the freshman. And Max says, I have to sleep with Max says uh, oh, yeah, Jane 2, Electric Boogaloo, which itself is, a, is an old pop culture <laughs> reference. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it all sort of comes back to those moments. And it's also like there was also this underlying level of, of almost like nihilism, you know, where, where these guys, you know, where Max sleeps with Miami and doesn't even seem to regret it that much. I mean, he regrets it a little bit, but doesn't seem to regret it that much, you know. And, and when Grover finds out, one of the first things he asked was like, how was she? And it's like, that's, it's kind of a little bit cringeworthy, you know, where you're like, boy, these, these guys really are their friends, but their friendship almost seems a little tenuous too. It's like, they just, they, they haven't figured out what they care about or what they want. And in the meantime, they're, they're sort of, they're cruel to each other at times. Yeah, that's a, that's another aspect of the movie that does double duty, I think, because it's never a secret that Max sleeps with Miami, who's Skippy's girlfriend. Like every, even Chet, who's not really an inner group of the circle, Chet knows about it, right? Right. Um, and then actually, when Skippy and everybody else confronts Max about it, this is something that really got me on on early viewings of the movie. Skippy doesn't leave the table. He basically says our friendship is over, and then, then everybody keeps sitting at the table, right? <laughs> and, and so in a movie, again, movies are supposed to be about change. In this climactic moment of the movie when their friendship dissolves, nobody nobody actually leaves the table, which seems like a really interesting detail on the part of Noah Baumbach. Yeah, because it's like, where would Skippy go? I Like, does he have any other friends? I don't know if he does. So... So I think that's it's, it is an interesting detail because they're sort of like, at least for now, they're stuck with each other because they're stuck in their own heads and they don't know what they want to do next. So, you know, he can declare that their friendship is over, but it's like if he walks out that door, what, what's he going to do? <laughs> well, he, he would have to start his life, which is what exactly none of the characters want to do. Um, <laughs> Uh, jumping back to something you were talking about earlier about Reservoir Dogs and all the pop culture and stuff, there there is a sense, and you can disagree with me if you want, but I feel like there's a sense that Tarantino influenced this movie because when Otis gets a job at the video store, his boss assumes he's going to be a filmmaker, right? See, you're shocked. They'd have to invent a section for my movie. That'll be cool, huh? When I make my movie and it comes out on video, you and I can see who rents it. We could probably sit here and watch it on the TV. Do you plan on still working here even after you make a motion picture? So it almost takes this 1990s inside joke about the famous story about Tarantino going from being a video store clerk to a filmmaker himself and embeds it within the movie itself. Right, exactly. And his boss is played by Dean Cameron, who's like one of those great sort of 80s movie character actors, you know. So, yeah, it is. that 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 is interesting. I mean, I, I would assume... You know, this came out in 94 and Reservoir Dogs was, what, a year or two earlier. So so it was almost like Tarantino had had kind of overwhelmed and swallowed up Gen X culture at that point. So that, that it would be interesting to know whether Noah Baumbach wrote that with Tarantino 
in mind, but it certainly seems like looking back on it that he must have, that he must have had some sense of like, this was sort of, this is sort of the Tarantino legend and we're going to play around with that a little bit. But it was also like video stores were just such a huge part of the culture too. Yeah. And then there's, then there's the joke that all, the only job that Otis can get is, is it a video store? And he has to go in for a second interview. Um, <laughs> but I do happen to know that there was, it was just the time in history when, when it was, I know that Richard Linklater, when he made uh, Slacker or Dazed and Confused, that he brought this Time Magazine article about 20-somethings. And Noah Baumbach also brought it to his financiers when he made Kicking and Screaming. That basically, I think when Baumbach started this movie, Generation X hadn't really been defined yet. And, and as a side, I actually talked to Sophronia Scott, the Time magazine writer who wrote this article. She was a young, a young journalist at the time. It was, it was interesting to hear her perspective on the article. But it's almost like Generation X became a phenomenon after Noah Baumbach had already made the movie. And, and then he was, he was sort of lumped by marketing category into this category. And another interesting aside, did you know that Jason Blum was his roommate at Vassar? Like Blum of Blumhouse? I did not know that, no. Are you familiar with this? It's like a horror movie um, producer. Um, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I had no idea until recently that they were roommates at Vassar and like Blum, if I'm pronouncing his name right, pulled some strings with Steve Martin and Steve Martin somehow helped get this movie made. It's, it's really weird what happens behind the scenes of these movies, which people like you and I mostly see in terms of their story. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I think I've almost avoided trying to read too much about the movie because I just want it to stand on its own. You know, I don't, I almost don't want to know too much about, about the behind the scenes things or, you know, even just about like Noah Baumbach. I'm almost like afraid to read too much in case it spoils my experience in some way. I just, it's just one of those, one of those movies that I just sort of want to stand on its own. Well, do you remember, do you remember a website called noahbaumbach.com that was around in like 2003 or 2004 that had, it had like message boards about kicking and screaming and some other movies like his second and a half movies, Mr. Jealousy and, and Highball were not really broadly well received. It was, it was when he was making, writing uh, Squid and the Whale for which he was nominated for an Oscar. Um, but do you remember this? There's a point at which Noah Baumbach came on and he would answer people's questions. This was before social media at NoahBaumbach.com, which he didn't, he didn't own. I had no idea. I mean, I know that he took his name off of Highball, right? Because he just thought it was such a mess. Um, and, and he's, I don't think, I think there's like some, some pseudonym listed as the director. Um, and Mr. Jealousy, I thought was actually an okay movie, but, um, but yeah, I, I can see that because those, 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 all three of those movies are sort of in the same vein and they sort of, um, draw the same people like you and me to them, you know? So there, there can't be just you and I who are totally into those movies at, at a certain age. There, there was sort of a, a real sort of low level cult following with those movies and then obviously he made the squid and the whale and it was like okay this guy's a real director he's gonna do real things you know but but it felt like those early movies were kind of like do you, do you, i don't know if you still feel this way but they feel like our little secret almost at this point totally and i think part of the reason that they are our little secret is that 
Like if you were in, you know, a state college market or a Wichita, Kansas market, you saw this at the video store and you felt like it was speaking to you specifically. There was no entity telling you to watch this movie besides the marketing mechanisms that said, oh, here's another Generation X movie. If you like Reality Bites, maybe you'll like Kicking and Screaming. And then suddenly here's this movie that was just so much smarter than anything that was else that was out there. And actually on this NoahBaumbach.com um, message board, which Noah Baumbach, there, it actually, I think it started as a as a petition to get it made on dvd because kicking and screaming was not on dvd in 2003 right but uh, uh, a notable person said i am now 30 years old and i still cannot get over the fact that i graduated from college please help i need this movie in a digital format can you guess who this person may have been i think that was me yeah that was you i was it's funny i was because <laughs> as soon as you said that i was like I think I wrote that. I think I remember writing this now because I think I was probably just searching around online to see if I could find this movie on DVD. And then obviously they put out the Criterion Collection version uh, a few years later. But um, but yeah, oh my God, I had completely forgotten that that I had written that, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, it, it took the squid and the whale, I think, for them to make a DVD version, Criterion Collection version of Kicking and Screaming. But I was living in Bangkok, Thailand at the time. I'm on the message board, too. I just I just found it on the Wayback Machine recently. And it's like, I'm going to search Michael's name. And there you were. There you were. That you, <laughs> you had also gone on this, on this message board back in 2003. And so it, that's another anachronism. You know, like in the age of social media, a film director would never go on a message board and just sort of cursorily answer people's questions and interact with people. I don't know if you saw that part of that website, but um, it was this real grassroots, early internet, almost dial-up era internet fan site for Noah Baumbach that he actually interacted with. It's very strange. And it's sort of an aside, but it's it's very strange. Yeah, that is really strange. I had completely forgotten that I'd done that. Uh, it was interesting, though. I actually... Um, a couple of years ago, I it was more than a couple of years ago. It was a few years ago. I guess I was still living in New York, and I actually saw a little piece of paper on the sidewalk that said "broken glass." And I took a picture. I took a picture of it and I sent it to Chris Eigenman on Twitter, and then he wound up like retweeting it and following me after that. So that was that was one of my prouder moments of um, sort of actually interacting with these people. And then another time, I my ex-wife actually saw um the guy who plays otis we were at a restaurant in boston and i dared her to go up to him and say go away cookie man and she did and um and that was that was you know another proud moment in my life which, <laughs> which i'm sure he laughed but i'm sure no everybody else was like what the hell are you talking about you know well i think it's a special movie and that carlos jaycott is that how you say his name uh, yeah i'm not even sure how you pronounce it but I just, I, you know, I, I, he's had a decent career as a character actor, but I just think he is so funny in that move, in this movie. You know, he's just like, his comic timing is amazing. Well, when the Criterion Collection came out and they had the commentary track, basically everybody involved with the movie admitted that he stole the movie. Um, and, and there's just so many little Otis details in there. Like very early in the movie, this is just like the last time I watched it, something I noticed. Um, Max falls over in his chair at the big graduation party. Mm -hmm. and, and when he gets back up, like like Otis is sort of talking to him, like he has these little lines like, you know, you just fell down, you know, are, are you hurt? Like there's these little, like there's something very neurotic about Otis, but but he humanizes the character in this very in this very believable way that's that's sort of a very deeply charming part of this movie. 
Yeah, I mean the the pajama top and the wearing mascara and is that a pajama top? No. <laughs> yes. Are you wearing mascara? No. Yes. Uh, those are jokes that I have heard seven hundred times. I mean, my wi- my internet Wi-Fi password was well, the, the it was go away cookie man, and then the password was, was pajama top. But I just feel like I've seen I've heard these jokes so many times, and I still laugh at them and there aren't a lot of movies like that you know you know Lebowski is one like that you know Dazed and Confused there are certain moments like that but just in terms of like pure laughter uh, that's the some of the stuff that Otis does I just feel like the timing is just so perfect I wonder how much of it was ad-libbed just because these guys were all friends and they all knew each other and especially with with Otis like you mentioned there's just sort of these these lines in the background you know where he's he's like with the monkey movies and he just keeps repeating monkeys monkeys Ted and Alice you know and it's like this it's like it doesn't make any sense it's it's a complete inside joke but it's sort of because if you watch the movie enough it becomes your inside joke well, I think too when he's saying "monkey, monkeys, Ted and Alice," it's really it's this really awkward moment when Skippy has been a complete dick about Miami, right? And 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 Otis is is just he he feels awkward and he's trying to smooth things over because he's sort of a good natured guy, but he can't. That's why I think you can draw a line to 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 Greenberg because you know Ben Stiller in that movie is like in his early forties and and he just feels like he could have been one of the characters hanging out with these guys, you know, that he was almost like, he's almost like a, like a grown up version of Max or something, you know? And, and it, it feels like he gives this at the end of Greenberg for people who haven't seen, he sort of gives this long speech about these kids today and you know, what's, what's different about them and what our generation did. And it just feels like, I think Noah Baumbach still has these through lines in his movies where a lot of what he was exploring and kicking and screaming is at least there under the surface or as a subtext to pretty much everything that he does. Yeah, you know, around the same time I was watching Kicking and Screaming, I was sort of in this state of stasis. It was, I, I eventually moved to Korea. I got a job in Korea. I eventually became a journalist and travel writer, and I've, I've done fine. But I was at this very specific state of stasis. I read this quote in Details Magazine. I don't know if you were a subscriber or not, but it was a very Gen X magazine by Gordon Gano of the Violent Femmes, who had just decided <laughs> to get married. And he quotes Jose Ortega y Gasset, the Spanish existentialist. And he, he says, the youth, because he is not yet anything determinate and irrevocable, is everything potentially. Herein lies his charm and his insolence. Feeling that he is everything potentially, he supposes that he is everything actually. And that really resonated with me at the time because I, I think that my stasis in my mid-20s was being worried that choosing to be one thing or working towards being one thing would compromise all my other future selves. And it feels like that's sort of what these Noah Baumbach characters are up against. Absolutely. And I still feel that in my life sometimes too. You know, I mean, I've gone into, um, you know, journalism and sports writing and culture writing. and but, But I often feel like, is this the thing that I'm supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be doing something else? Um, have I taken the wrong path? Um, and I've gotten better about it over the years, at least a little bit, but there's still, you know, maybe that's part of being in a creative field or being, being a creative type of person is that you're always going to have those thoughts. But I think this, this movie just encapsulates those thoughts that you have, especially at a young age where it's like, there are so many possibilities here. What if I choose the wrong possibility? 
Well, that's and you know, Max is like, I wish we were just marching off to war, right? <laughs> yeah, because then the choice would be made for you, right? And then it would be like, well, okay, I gotta go to Germany and fight Hitler, you know? And it was horrible. It's terrible. It's this really stupid thing to say, but it's also like the kind of thing you might say when you're t- 22 years old and, and you know, kind of privileged and maybe spoiled a little bit. It, it really is middle class people problems. Um, yeah. And in in a way, I feel like there's a PhD thesis that needs to be written about this in that these are guys, you know, the the whole idea of privilege is talked about more commonly these days. And I think by certain standards of 2019, 2020, that people would say, oh, well, these, why should we worry about these characters in this movie? And I think maybe at the time some critics said that. And interestingly enough, this movie has like 55% at Rotten Tomatoes. If you go to the Amazon page, a lot of people are like, what's going on with this movie? Nothing happens, you know? So there's people who, for whom this movie rubbed the wrong way, but it feels like there's this very specific problem of middle-classness and the decisions that it places on individuals that Noah Baumbach is still sort of um, dealing with as an artist. Yeah, and I think it's specific, like we mentioned, to that time period when um, you know, um, we weren't really at war. I mean, obviously we had the Gulf War, but that was hardly a war. Um, and, and, and it just felt like, you know, the, the economy was generally pretty good. Um, it felt like the, you know, the world, it was kind of the, you know, post-communism, the world felt like it was at peace. Um, so I think there was more room for, especially for maybe for privileged people to sort of have these moments of, you know, exploration or um, just sort of meandering, you know, mental meandering, I guess. Um, Obviously, the world feels a lot different now. So, you know, I I can see that like people who grew up in a different generation, you know, with in a different world might not understand what we were doing in the 90s, sort of puttering about. Um, But then, you know, you look at like, I look at, you know, this this sort of younger generation gravitating toward friends. And I think there's sort of that same idea there, right? Where it's like, oh, these people were sort of young and privileged and didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives. And I'm sort of envious of that in a way. You know, for, you know these younger people, I think, maybe are envious of that, that they had all this idle time, that they could sit in a coffee shop and just talk with each other about, about things. You know, and friends is obviously, to me, is a much... Is a, is a less smart version of kicking and screaming, but a lot of the same themes. Yeah, you know, I, I think one thing that we don't think about that becomes apparent when you watch a movie like this 25 years later is that these characters, as privileged as they were, they didn't have the option of creating a, a sort of a fake sanitized persona on social media. Basically, they had to be where they were. They had to interact in specific places at specific times with specific people. And they couldn't just sort of Instagram certain kinds of perfection into their life when they felt like shit for not really being anything yet. They had to they had to experience it. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting. There's that scene where Otis is watching TV and Max is getting on him about watching TV and how you're an idiot for watching TV. And it's sort of the same argument that we have, like, if, if if Otis was on his cell phone the whole movie, you know, it would sort of be the same type of argument. But but it feels like it's like the 90s version of that where, um, you know, it was like a TV makes you stupid. And, and now it's like, well, social media makes you stupid. But but it's just sort of heightened up a notch. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
I don't know. They're just when you watch a movie as much as you and I have, you you start to see how even things like place come into play because at the beginning of the movie, all the guys are like chain smokers who drink scotch. But then you have this series of flashbacks to that sort of details Grover's relationship with Jane. And he sees her sitting in a townie bar, the Penguin, and it's completely flabbergasted that she would be there, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like you get the whole, all of these, what 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 Max calls affectations becoming habits, um, almost traced back to this very place-specific experience where Grover stumbles upon his sort of writing workshop rival, um, Jane, in this bar, and they have this conversation that's so affecting to him that he tells her that he wishes he could keep it, right? So it, it feels like that, of course, that's also a that's also a, a, a class-specific situation where they're going into a townie bar and Jane is here, and, and somehow that place reveals a depth to Grover about Jane that really affects the next year of his life. Yeah, and, he, and then there's that last scene, which, I don't know, maybe it's just because I've seen it so much, but it's it's still really affecting to me when he says, you know, I wish we were an old couple right now. Okay, the way I see it, if we were an old couple, dated for years, graduated away from all these scholastic complications, and I reached over and kissed you, you wouldn't say a word. I mean, you'd be delighted, probably. But if I was to do that now, it'd, it would be quite forward. And if I did it the first time we ever met, uh, you probably would hit me. What do you mean? I just wish we were an old couple so I could do that. I, th- I think there's something about the the sense of sort of nostalgia and uncertainty that just really hit me when I was younger and it's and it still sort of hits me that that that's you know that he he wants Grover wants something he just doesn't know what it is. I, and maybe that's what the kind of, you know, you mentioned that there always has to be this sense of these characters wanting to, I think they want to change, or at least at times they want to change, but they don't know how. And, and Jane's sort of the one who is embracing that change. Well, I think, too, Grover doesn't, he's seen enough romantic comedies that he doesn't want to be predictable. And so really, that's a that's a first kiss moment, right? And and I I absolutely love that moment from the first time I saw it because it sort of ends the movie ends on this note that predates all the other acts in the movie, where Grover is very sort of interestingly asking Jane for a kiss in a, in a roundabout way, but he doesn't want to just lean in for a kiss. I'm curious, did did you did you take on any affectations from this movie? Did you wear a tweed jacket or anything? Yeah, I think I started shopping at thrift stores a little bit more. So I would get like some corduroy jackets with the elbow patches on them. Um, You know, definitely like with my friends at the time, I would sort of show it to them, too. And then we would we would quote a lot of different lines from it. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think those were kind of the the main things was that we would just kind of have like a shorthand of, of of things that we would say to each other from the movie. Yeah, I, I I was so smitten with those with those tweed jackets that I got one, and I actually brought it with me when I went to Korea to teach English as a second language. And people were like, "Why are you wearing that?" <laughs> and another thing that happened from that scene, like before he talks about how he wishes they were an old couple so he could lean in and kiss her. What what does their conversation consist of when they're in the bar itself? 
Well, they're both wildly drunk. I remember that. Oh, um, oh, love affair, love affair. So, so he, so basically, Grover. They've had a conversation that we haven't heard, and Grover says, "What if we did have a love affair?" Or actually, no. Uh, Jane says, "What if we did have a love affair? Do you think it would last?" And Grover says, "Oh, that's a great way of looking at it." For years afterward, when I was courting women, I would use the word love affair, and it made no sense to these women I was courting because love affair, in the context of that movie, is sort of beautiful. But in the context of normal life, it sounds like a throwaway thing, right? So it's almost like I started using words from that movie with people who hadn't watched the movie, and it made me sound weird in the same way that my tweed jacket made me sound weird. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That would happen sometimes where, you know, I would just be like, yeah, woo you or something, you know, and somebody would be like, what, what are you talking about? You know? So, so I just felt like there would be little, yeah, little lines in that movie that I, that I would try to use in normal conversation. And the, you know, it's such a, such sort of this weird elevated language that it was like, yeah, it did feel like I was like talking out of a Noel coward, coward play or something. Yeah, no, it it was it was an elevated language that I really embraced, and I think that's why it's so quotable, you know. And in fact, when the Criterion Collection finally released a DVD, the cover was just quotes from the movie, um, and I think that's one of the things, maybe not unlike The Big Lebowski or something, that's sort of what drove its cult status to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like 15 different lines at the moment, you know. So, so it's just like. I, and, and I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes they just they just randomly pop up in my head if I see something or if, you know, if I'm walking somewhere and I see a sign and it just like, you know, I start thinking about Cookie Man or, you know, I start, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, sometimes if I'll just, you know, talk to talking to a friend and I'll be like, you've got a drinking problem. Get help. You know, it's just like it's, there's just so many um, sort of dry, funny lines in that movie that have just stuck in my head as as a shorthand and maybe as a way you know i don't know if you feel this way but like maybe it's it's probably influenced my writing in some ways just sort of that sense of humor that they had at least trying to aspire to to have that sort of dry that dry sense of humor that they had with each other oh definitely definitely it's a writer's movie and of course noah baumbach ended up writing for the new yorker before he made a lot of his 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 future movies that it has a writerly sensibility and of course when i watched this movie i think i picked it off the 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 shelf at a grocery store video department which young people would hardly even fathom how a grocery store would have a video rental department but that happened in the 1990s i saw it i picked it off the shelf sort of in an eye-rolling way and i think the reason i i rented it because ebert had endorsed it and i sort of trusted ebert roger ebert the the film critic and I took it home, and it was just because it was such a smartly written movie. It was it was head and shoulders above, um, you know, the reality bites type movies that were being marketed to us at the time. Yeah, there were so many of those movies that were terrible. You know, whether it was like Empire Records or you know, there were like, I think I think it block maybe it was a blockbuster. I think there was a whole shelf of these movies where it was just like Gen X movies. You know, and and I would watch all of them. I didn't see somehow I didn't see Glory Days, but but I felt like I had I probably have watched 95 percent of them and most of them were terrible. So, you know, it was almost like you get a movie like this just randomly out of the blue. And it, it was like, this is what I've been looking for. This is the one that I've been searching for. 
Yeah. Well, I, I recommend watching, maybe not my audience, but for you as a, as a Kicking and Screaming fan, watching Glory Days just for anthropological purposes, just because that filmmaker was writing about his own experience at UC Santa Cruz, and it just didn't work in the way that Noah Baumbach's movie made. I think that guy went on to make like the Triple X series of action movies, which I don't think I've seen. Okay. Um, Anyhow, um, since we're nearing the top of the hour here, I'm curious about a couple of things. One, did I miss anything? Is there is there anything that you're dying as a fan of the movie that you're dying to talk about? Lines that you're dying to quote? Observations about the movie that you've that you've internalized over the years that I haven't brought up yet? I mean, I feel like we got to all the good Otis lines. Um, I, I I just I, you know I was again I was watching part of it last night and that scene where Max is trying to write and just staring at the mirror and talking about how he does nothing basically feel, feels like every day of being a writer, you know, sort of having that conflict with yourself. Hello, my friend, my little friend, you do nothing. Max Belmont does nothing. Oh, Max, what, what do you do? Oh, I, I do nothing. So that, that part, didn't feel dated to me, you know? I know that this movie is dated in a, in a lot of ways, and I know that there will maybe there will be people who will listen to this podcast and go watch it and will be like, what are these guys even talking about? It's terrible. But um, it, I think it's an, it's an artifact of a time and a place. And, it, and it's, it really is a special movie, and I hope Noah Baumbach, of all people, realizes how special this movie is. And one funny thing about that scene with Max is I... I'd forgotten he's drinking alone in that scene. He's like drinking a scotch by himself um, when he's talking about how I'm Max Belmont, former college senior, now does nothing. So actually keeping in mind that it, some people might find it dated. Some people might be of a generation who thinks it's really strange because it has video stores and answering machines. Um, what's the argument for watching it now? Why is this a timeless and wonderful movie? I just think it captures that sense of 90s nostalgia better than pretty much any movie I or any piece of pop culture that I can imagine. It just seems like there are millions and millions of these young people, like I mentioned, watching Friends and Kicking and Screaming just seems to me like a little more arch and far more intelligent version of Friends. Like if you want that feeling of being young and not knowing what you're doing yet, Watch this instead. Watch this 300 times instead of watching 300 episodes of Friends. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Michael Weinreb's books and Noah Baumbach's movie Kicking and Screaming can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>